0: We're thrilled to have Michelle Hamoff here tonight. Michelle Hamoff is a writer and blogger whose writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, psychologytoday.com, the Huffington Post. She's a founding member of NOW's Young Feminist Task Force. She blogs about feminist issues at genfem.com. She also has a podcast at michellehamoff.podmatic.com, podomatic.com. She's here today with her debut novel, uh, These Days Are Ours, which Booklist and Publishers Weekly both gave star reviews and had this, Booklist said this, debut novelist Hamoff clearly captures the strange, sad time and immediate aftermath of 9-11 and yet she also nails the energetic, funny banter of 20-somethings, the expectations placed on sons and daughters of a super successful and the heartache of being young and lost. Please welcome Michelle Hamoff. Yeah. Oh, you should make it. Sorry, better. I just, I'm small. <laughs> Is that better? Hello? It's feeding back. Yeah, that's not I might not need it. Yeah, you do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Now. Now. Come on, you're a big author, you gotta get used to this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not okay. good. <laughs> Um, so thank you all so much for coming out. I know like 90% of you live on the west side, so I really appreciate it. Um, and I wanted to thank especially Sarah Hecox, whose birth date is so embarrassing Aww. her, but you know, we have so, so picky. And, uh, Sarah Weiss, my editor, who's here from New York, which is really exciting. Um, uh, the book really was a collaborative effort with her. She's incredibly talented and just amazing to work with. Um, so anyway, as you know, this is my book These Days Are Ours, and uh, it's about for some of you that haven't read it yet, it's about a group of college graduates that are in New York City six months after September 11th, and they're kind of just trying to figure out what their next move is and the protagonist, Haley, moves back in with her parents and um, she's just kind of in limbo. She's done with college, but she can't really, you know, she's interviewing for a job, but she doesn't know what that job's going to be at. And, um, you know, it's it's just kind of that strange time when you don't, before you start the rest of your life after all the educational things, but you just don't know what that's going to look like. Um, The thing that's kind of interesting about this book being published right now is that it takes place exactly 10 years ago. So it takes place in March 2002. Um, And actually, in one of the first scenes, the characters are talking about the Oscars and Tom Cruise's Oscar speech where he says, you know, dare we have the Oscars in light of recent events, you know, more than ever, and kind of does this whole thing. That's before he had, like, a total nervous breakdown, but they they talk about it in the book. Um, and, uh, And it's that weird time after September 11th, not not immediately after not when you know smoke was billowing out of buildings and people were running down the street and it was just kind of a total shit show but six months later when business was kind of as usual again and the energy of the city was there but there was this very strange undercurrent and um it it was just like people philosophizing about is there going to be another terrorist attack is this going to be world war three what's going to happen next what are they going to take out next um, but also kind of feeling safe enough to even have those conversations. So I'm going to read three sort of shortish passages, and um, the first one is one between Haley, the main character, and her friend Jess, and they're just like on the phone, hanging out, talking about you know what the terrorists are going to take out next. And um, I really tried to to make this book a time capsule of that exact time in history. So, the way they spoke, what they spoke about, what the cultural references were, what they joked about, um, and hopefully this dialogue will kind of get across what I was trying to do with that. The thing that would be awesome about getting blown up by terrorists is that everyone would think we would all this unrealized potential. I know, she said. We had a moment of silence for all the pressure that would fall away if everything, including us, was gone. Do you think suicide bombers are thinking the same thing? Like, do you think for them it's an easy way out of having to actually do anything with their lives? She considered it. I don't know, it really seems like a last resort. At least apply to law school first. I know, at least take the LSAT. But they must be really convinced that there's an afterlife or that their reputation in this life is so important it's worth dying for. I turned on my side and looked out my window at the darkness above Central Park. What are they gonna blow up next, do you think? I don't know, maybe Grand Central? I hope they don't blow up the Empire State Building. I really love the Empire State Building. I felt a wave of sadness for the Empire State Building within the greater thrill of apocalyptic destruction. It'll probably be something in LA. Yeah, Hollywood definitely pisses off Islamic fundamentalists. Plus, there are a lot of Jews there. (laughs) I pulled New York Magazine off my nightstand and flipped to the page where emaciated celebrities my age hung out at parties with other emaciated celebrities my age. I heard a click. Hello, I said. Yeah, I'm here. That's probably the phone being tapped because we said the word terrorism 500 times. I feel bad for whoever's listening to this conversation. They must be so bored. I wish they would just join in. I switched ears. I know, she said. Hey, did I tell you that my dad bought us gas masks and chemical suits? "'No, I'm so jealous. When can I see them?' "'I don't have mine here. He's holding on to them uptown "'because, you know, I'll have plenty of time to get uptown "'if there's a chemical bomb.' "'Oh, yeah, all the trains will be running perfectly, right?' "'I feel like if you're going to get killed by a terrorist, "'you can't really do anything about it.' "'You generally can't do much about getting killed,' she said. "'I closed the magazine. "'There was a picture of the towers with smoke coming out of them "'and the words six months later in red letters on top. "'I wear sunscreen,' I said." so you're less likely to get killed by the sun. Right. I floss. So you're less likely to get killed by plaque. Exactly. I turned the TV on, muted it, and flipped to a Friends rerun. The set looked cartoonishly colorful. You know what we should do, she said? What? Open a pizza place. Why? Because it's a straightforward business, and we're girls, so we can get a lot of press just based on that alone. Two young Jewish girls open a pizza place. We know nothing of making pizza. We could learn. Jennifer Aniston's hair was really puffy in this episode. I met this guy Adrian tonight. He's like my parents' friend's son. He was at our Seder. What's his deal? I don't know, he went to Brown. So he knows Randy? Oh, I didn't even ask. I asked about other people, but I totally forgot to ask about Randy. I switched the phone to my other ear. I bought Hanukkah stamps, she said, and I knew it was a bad call when I bought them. Now it's like March. The walls in my room had recently been painted. I hadn't noticed until now. Someone must have taken everything off the walls and then put it all back on. That sucks. Hey, do you think the subways are safe? Maybe my bedroom walls should be darker. Not that it mattered. This wasn't my home anymore. I think they're probably as safe as anything. I mean, most cab drivers are Muslim. I'm not really clear on whether or not they want us all dead. I don't understand why the terrorists aren't attacking again. It would be so easy. I know, I said. I don't understand it either. So uh, the next passage I want to read is um a passage about Haley's mother who only wears black that's like her idiosyncratic characteristic and uh, to me there's a theme in the book about the relationship between the baby boom generation and the generation that came after generation XY I guess and uh, and there's kind of this idea that the baby boom gener- the baby boom generation started as this like, sweetness and light generation. You know, these hippies, super idealist. And then they had like the 70s and 80s and 90s and aunts And they got kind of like worn down throughout time. And Haley's parents really personify that. They got divorced and when they were kind of like young and in love, there's these photos that she sees of them that are very different than how they are now. And the mom is almost in mourning in the sense that she never wears anything but black clothing. So I'm just gonna read a scene that's a description of the way in which she only wears black. But first some wine. When I got to the fourth floor, I spotted my mother wearing black, looking at black shoes. My mother wore black. She wore only black. It had become a permanent physical trait, like her bangs or her silver-blue eyes. Recent additions to her social circle didn't quite get it at first, and their attempts to convert her only proved how tenuous the relationships were. They'd buy her Indian print Hermes scarves or turquoise Ralph Lauren cardigans, thinking that if the color was vivid enough, she wouldn't be able to resist it. They shot for her with irritating hubris, assuming that they could break her of a habit where generations had failed. I love these, she said, holding up a black shoe. They're nice, but don't you have something similar? Not in suede with a low heel. The last time I had tried to get her to wear color, it was Mother's Day and I was ten. She had complimented a green leather belt in a window, and I thought that meant that she had liked it. It meant that she thought it would make a nice gift. I paid for it in cash with my birthday money. And it now sits with the other non-returnables in a cabinet out of view, like the hand-knit cantaloupe shrug my great aunt had once knit her. The flowers in the apartment were white. The luggage was Louis Vuitton. But her shoes, her gloves, her bags, her scarves, her stockings were all black. Can you believe this clown shirt she'd say about a deep purple Oscar de, Oscar de la Renta blouse? She wouldn't even make eye contact with the mannequins the season Ralph Lauren did me on. I picked up a black loafer with a thick rubber heel. Mom, I said. She looked at me and then at the shoe and shook her head no. It turns out there are many different shades of black, some only noticeable to black clothing obsessives. there's cotton black, which always looks a little washed out, black velvet, the most saturated, and black linen the least. There are blacks that look red, green, or brown, and salt black, which almost looks white. It's not enough for the clothing to be black, the blacks also have to coordinate. She might have been the only woman in the world who who could stand in front of a mirror dressed in all black and say, it clashes. The jacket might have had an almost indecipherable sepia tone that didn't mix with the blue-black of her shell, or the black-on-black brocade of her trousers might have been too busy for her black cable-knit turtleneck. Every so often she caved and bought a black Laura Piano blazer with charcoal gray piping, or a black Calvin Klein dress with a large silver zipper all the way down the back. But they always end up in the bag for the housekeeper. She had no patience for trim, buttons, or even stitching that wasn't as black as the rest of the garment. And if she saw any of this, she'd move on. Her personal shopper knew the depth of her pathology, but once in a while would boldly offer a Dolce & jacket with satin teal lining. You've a good sense of humor, Jackie. My mom would say, and Jackie would quickly hang it back on the rack as though she were being playful. <laughs> um, so the last passage I want to read is uh, a passage where. Kaylee has a job interview. She has a few job interviews in this book, um, you know, like any recent college graduate, and uh, it, her friends do too, and they don't generally go very well, uh, just for for different reasons in each scenario, and um, and I think you'll you'll see just based on the scene why this interview didn't go as all well as she would have hoped. My interview that Monday was with American Express financial advisors. The room was white and had nothing in it except for a table and two chairs. How many gas stations are there in the United States? This was the logic question. I didn't have to answer it right. I just had to prove that I was logical. The problem was that I had never personally used a gas station. There were maybe three in New York City that I was aware of, but there must have been more in other parts of the country where all people do is get gas. Feel free to think out your answer aloud, he said. I didn't even know how many people lived in the United States or the world. Was this something we ever covered in school, or was it something you were just supposed to know, like not to touch anything after you touch raw chicken? (laughs) Well, there's what, like 10 billion people in the world? He was looking at a black leather (laughs) clipboard. There are roughly 5 billion people in the world. So there's about one billion in the United States. There are about 350 million people in the United States. Right, I was already fucked. So there's gotta be, guess high, a hundred million gas stations. A hundred million? Yes. That's approximately one gas station for every four people. People in the middle of the country have to do a lot of driving. The distances are long. (laughs) Correct, I said. (laughs) He wrote something down. Why do you want to be an American Express financial advisor? How many gas stations are there? He paused. About 117,000. So I was a little off. I smiled. (laughs) He didn't. I put my elbow on the arm of the chair I was sitting in. I love the idea of working with people and Amex is the biggest brand in the world. I think it's a fantastic community to be a part of. He nodded and jotted something else down. It probably had nothing to do with the interview. How would you describe yourself in a word? I stared into space trying to think of the perfect word until I noticed him looking at me. Unflappable? He waited. I'm not easily flapped. I sat up a little, put my elbow back down. I'm good under pressure. I can handle tight deadlines. I'm good at juggling. Not actual juggling, but juggling, but you know, juggling. I made a juggling motion that completely contradicted what I had just said. <laughs> he closed his leather portfolio. It was embossed with the Amex logo. Do you have any questions for me? Is being an adult just about taking a dumb job to shut everyone up? When can I expect to hear from you in the next few weeks? We shook hands, and if he had to pick me out of the lineup a minute later, I was pretty sure he wouldn't have been able to. <laughs> Now we're going to do a QA. Yeah. So, I hope you're all nice and
1: liquored up and have some good questions.
0: <laughs> I'm going to have some more wine. You and the green. <laughs> How long did it take you to write this? Um, so I started writing about 10 years ago. And um, I didn't tell anyone I was writing a novel just because then people would be like, How's your novel going? And then I would just kind of feel like a jerk. So, I would put it away in a drawer for like years at a time and then revisit it and put it away again. And at some point it was like, this is a cohesive thing, and I should just like finish this. And even if it's terrible and everybody hates it, at least it will be done and then I don't have to like agonize over it anymore. Um, so I'd say like the whole process with those like years long breaks was like 10 years. <laughs> question. So is this something completely fictitious or something that perhaps you were connected to for other people? Um, I really wanted to create this time capsule of that period in New York after September 11th. Not like the next day, but that six months after thing. Because what's so um, off to me about other September 11th books is that they really talk about how You know how sad it was, and how everything stopped. And my horror at those months after September 11th was how much it wasn't like that. And I was like, wow, like things just didn't really stop. And everyone's, you know, New York's just back to being New York, and nothing really changed. And it was kind of this idea of mourning after the fact. Like I think that if anyone here has ever been in mourning, I think the thing that's so difficult about it isn't the excitement immediately after. It's after that subsides. And you're still thinking about this, and people are kind of like over it and moving on, and you haven't gotten there yet. So, so I felt like it. It felt to me much more like that kind of experience than an experience where everyone was really, really sad, and then everyone kind of like slowly built themselves back up, you know. And I was really um, kind of compulsive about the cultural references of March 2002, you know, and like exactly what are people talking about. I have a bunch of um, songs I reference in here, and I had a pretty young team between my uh, editor and agent and everyone, so if I got that wrong, they would correct me. Like, if I mentioned a Franz Ferdinand song, they would say, no, that was actually Strokes that year. <laughs> Franz Ferdinand wasn't until 04 Even like a bar in New York, you know, they'd be like, oh, pianos didn't open until, like, 03. So, So there's so many references, but the references, it's really supposed to be, like, historical fiction. You know, like the only thing fictional is the plot, but everything that happens around that is supposed to be just like a glimpse into those weeks, te- exactly 10 years ago. Yes. Yeah. Have you had any friends or family members ask, is that me, or find themselves in your characters? I've I definitely quoted a ton of people, like directly quoted people in here especially when they say something funny. So I've definitely had friends, you know, like at one point um, one of the girls says, I can't believe I slept with Mike's shoes on last night. And the other girl goes, I don't even know Mike's shoes on. Who's Mike's shoes on? And she's like, No, no, my shoes on. Like, I slept with my shoes on, and like that's like a friend of mine who like you know. So like I'll have different friends that that mention that. Um, or there's this other part. I don't even remember who this guy was, but there was some like you know investment banking finance guy that was like a friend of a friend, and he had gotten so like wasted with his team the night before work that when he came to work that day still drunk. He threw up in his own shirt. Oh, yeah. Like in his tucked in button down shirt. Oh. And it was like swishing around as he was walking at oh. home. And my friend and he was telling me and my friend the story and we're like, that's disgusting. And I was like, Yeah, that's in the book. <laughs> and like I don't even remember like who that guy was. He was like a friend of a friend, but there's like a lot of stuff like that where like if it's just something that seems particularly like early twenties type of thing, I would put it in there just because I felt like everyone could kind of relate to that. Or even I was speaking in New York uh, recently, and I, I got asked a similar question. And I said, um, yeah, there's a scene where one of the characters like throws up in a New York taxi. And I'm like, but who of us hasn't thrown up in a New York taxi? You know? And everyone's <laughs> just kind of like, yeah, we've all kind of or out the window. Um, <laughs> any other questions? Yes. Uh, well, you. Okay. Um, once you wrote the book. How did you go from being a blogger to a novelist, (laughs) officially? Well, I I don't think um, it was that linear. I think I was just kind of like writing a bunch of things simultaneously. So, um, you know, it's like, I mean, I, I personally kind of feel like for all of us, we're so used to multitasking with technology and everything else that it's actually really hard to start and finish a project in a linear way. I almost feel like our best bet is to like, be tweeting and checking Facebook every thirty seconds and blogging and like writing a novel or a screenplay or whatever else and like doing all of that concurrently because just sitting in like a quiet empty room with like an open Microsoft Word document I think is just like torture, you know. And I didn't I didn't start like from page one. I wasn't like, you know, the first sentence is gonna be this. Like I just kind of like had a bunch of pieces that like fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And I was just kind of like trying to figure it out the whole time until it sort of came together, you know? Yes? Um, characters in the book are pretty privileged. And I know the Nylon review was really good, but the reviewer did mention that it sort of seems almost out of step with the times right now, mm-hmm. or in a certain way. Do you feel that way, or do you feel as if...? I, mean, I think that um, the, the review that she's talking about is Nylon Magazine reviewed it, and it was, on the whole, a pretty positive review, but they did mention that, that the economic circumstances of the characters are different than the economic circumstances you would kind of talk about right now, and I think you know th- there's a few things to that. I think um, first of all, it's like any time you choose to write about something, you choose not to write about something else. So it's like if you're writing about a group of privileged, like Ivy League kids in New York City in March 2002, then you're not writing about like a group of like hipster kids in Silver Lake in March 2012, you know and um, I think it's also just kind of one of those things where, like, if the themes are universal enough and you're being honest to the stories of tr- not necessarily real stories, but true stories, then that can be something everyone relates to. Like the same way that we relate to people's stories where they're in a totally different you know, race, class, socioeconomic bracket, I, I think it works both ways, or I'd like to think that. Following up that question, given that you're so precise about March 2002 and here we are in March 2012, do you see any of now being established then? Do you see anything in terms of where we are sociologically or culturally, any of those roots being put down in the time that the book takes place? That's a very good question. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of it specifically with the characters. I think, yeah, like I think there, when these characters graduated college in the early aughts, I think like just about the most stable thing you could do was go into banking or finance. Like I think that was like the law school of these guys. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think that, um, you know, at one point Haley, the main character, is talking about her friend Kate, who works um, at Morgan Stanley. And she's so envious of the um, routine of her life where she just like, goes to work, goes to the gym, gets drunk with her friends. You know, it sounds like Jersey Shore, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I think that you know, there, there was this idea back then and that was just like the way to kind of have like, a stable job that you never had to worry about. And now it's like if somebody tells you they want to go to like, finance or banking, like, you don't think about them that way anymore. You know, so I think that's definitely like something huge that changed. Yeah. Yes. During the writing process, what was the most frustrating part for you? And then what was the most fulfilling part? <laughs> My The first thing that I think of is just working with Microsoft Word because it's such a terrible software program, but it's kind of um, not the most relevant thing. I think the frustrating part, which I realize now and didn't get at the time, is that I thought, and if you're a writer in this room, you can probably relate to this, that the thing that holds you back is self-discipline. And you're like, if I just wake up early every morning or, or make a point of setting aside a certain amount of hours a day and work on something, I will get it done and it will be done and then the, you know that will be that. And I think the thing that I realized in retrospect, at least for me, is that there was also a certain amount of patience because You figure some things out in the shower one day and you're like, oh, that's what needs to happen to that character. And that epiphany might happen three or six or nine months later than you want it to. So it's like, I I think the frustrating thing is like, you just want to like get the damn thing done. And you're like, if I'm just self-disciplined enough, I will get it done. And actually there's this other part of your brain that like keeps solving the problems. And eventually, you'll solve them, but it might not be on the timeline that you want, or that your publisher, I guess, potentially wants. Um, and I think the most rewarding thing is right now, people from every aspect of my life reading it and getting feedback from them. I mean, people in this room—you know—I've gotten emails from and encouragement from, and it's amazing how everyone takes something different from your work. You know, everyone has a different favorite character. Everyone has a different scene. People feel connected to you because you put yourself out there. And I think that probably is true of all art, you know, but it's just like, it's an amazing thing to get that feedback. Anyone else? Hey. <laughs>